Hello everyone and welcome to the Campaign Podcast where we chat about advertising, media and marketing. I'm your host Omar Oaks, Campaign's Global Tech Editor. So we're not going to focus on the latest industry news this week or chat about the latest ads because we want to focus on just one story for this episode, the continuing issue of racism and discrimination in the advertising industry and what needs to be done about it. I'm so grateful that we were able to get two super thoughtful and passionate people on this episode to talk about the issue. Shani Mears from The Elephant Room and Chris Kenner from Brand Advance. You may or may not have heard of them before, but they have both been helping lead the discussion over racial injustice in the ad industry in this past week. And I'll put links to their work in the show notes. Um, We get into a lot of important issues, such as what companies should be doing on a practical day-to-day level to tackle discrimination and what needs to happen next in terms of holding companies to account for various pledges that have been made. And there is a lot to think about here. Um, Interestingly, we didn't get much into issues of increasing representation, whether it's time for quotas and so on, but they both powerfully argue for why this issue should be an immediate concern now for brands and agencies, even if it's a really difficult time right now with the COVID downturn. Also, I really would recommend our episode from 13th of February, where we had Larissa Vince and Zaid El Zaidi on the episode to talk about problems and the lack of BAME people leading agencies. Um, you may actually remember there was an IPA census coming out around then that said BAME people in agency leadership roles had actually dropped slightly from the last year to less than 5%. And that's compared to a UK BAME population of 13%. I think it's more like 40% in London. Um, So please check that out too. And apologies for some slight dips in audio quality here and there. Unfortunately, it sometimes does happen when you're recording remotely. But if you like what you hear, please share a link to the episode. Do subscribe and leave a nice review if you like on wherever you listen, you're listening to this podcast so we can spread the word and get more people talking about this issue. So I'm here today with two people who have founded companies that are committed to diversity and inclusion, but interestingly, with different perspectives as they focus on creative and media respectively. Shani Mears is head of talent and co-founder of The Elephant Room, a creative agency that focuses on diverse creative collaboration, and it was launched in 2017 alongside Iris Worldwide's former chief executive, Dan Saxby. She's previously assisted on helping brands like Adidas and Britvic, and I believe she was also named um, one of our sister titles, Management Today's 35 Under 30 and was chosen to sit on the race disparity audit that Theresa May, remember her, uh, that she launched shortly after becoming Prime Minister in 2016. Hello, Shani. Where does lockdown find you and um, how has the elephant room found these challenging times? Hey, well, I'm I'm cool. Um, I am currently just in my flat in South London, so I've been here doing lots of work. But the elephant room, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a really interesting, interesting time, as we all can imagine, with obviously COVID and now like a whole movement around Black Lives. So I've definitely been super indebted in that. But um, yeah, we've just sort of continued to spread our message, really. Like, you know, it's sort of business as usual, sort of working with clients, some pitches and stuff like that. So I teach dance. So I've been doing some like online tutorials and... Um, I manage a DJ, so me and him have been putting out some guest mixes and, you know, making sure that he's still getting work. 
Wow, where do you find the time? I don't suppose you watch a lot of television. <laughs> um, I, I, was <laughs> I was wondering, um, for listeners who don't know The Elephant Room, how do you tap into a more diverse creative output? Is it purely down to the talent pool that you work with, or is it that you insist on a different approach to working with clients? Ultimately, to be honest, I'd say that our talent DNA is just different because the way myself and Dan initially connected when I was at Iris it was because I was trying to push a narrative of like creative talent exists everywhere and that is music, that's fashion, that's in the underground spaces, like parties and raves. There's people throwing parties and raves that are also graphic designers and I think that's mostly the space that I exist in. So for me personally, like like, like when, when we've created the Elephant Room, we've created a talent pool of people that they're not, they, they don't necessarily want to be in advertising or they don't necessarily even know that advertising in a space that they can exist in, but they're already doing like super cool stuff. So ultimately the elephant room just aims to be that. So when we approach clients, we approach clients with, I suppose, a diverse set of networks that exist beyond London as well. So it's Manchester, it's Leeds, it's London, it's Birmingham. Do you know what I mean? So that's kind of, I say, where we exist in that space and what my job is mostly aimed at. Okay, very interesting. And we have Chris Kenner. He is chief executive and founder of Rand Advance, a company which prides itself as being the industry's first dedicated global diversity media network. It connects brands with diverse audiences by focusing media planning and buying on media owners that are better at reaching LBGTQ plus BAME and disabled communities. Hello to you, Chris. How are you? Where does lockdown find you? Hey, I'm good. Um, I'm also in South London, in Greenwich. So today, glad to be indoors because it's raining outside, but just battling through through everything that's going on like everyone else. Good. I, I'm also in South London. I'm glad we're all representing uh, on this podcast today. Um, for <laughs> listeners who haven't heard of Brand Advance, is it that you plan and buy the media yourselves for brands or do you do consulting work with media agencies to have more diverse media plans? How does it work? Um, so firstly, we're an ad tech company. So we own the ad server that serves the ads into black, Asian, minority, ethnic publications across the world, LGBTQ+, um, disability, 50+, plus, gender empowerment. So basically the everything that was the other to a mainstream media agency, um, everything that's off what an agency might call mainstream in whatever country that is. Um, we've got media art in 81 countries um, and about 550 publications on our ad server that reaches about 1.1 billion people every month. We have a, a creative department here, both here in London and in New York as well, um, and consultancy, etc. and sort of we do everything other than help people get their own house in order, to be honest. Or work with companies like, like Shanice's, which we've never worked with, but we should be. But I've only, we've literally been on two meetings this week. And I, yeah. didn't know of, I didn't know of her before then, but I will do from this point going forward. But yeah, so we'll work with like their creative agencies, so like Unilever. So we're Unilever's diversity media agency and we work alongside Mindshare. And then we've got the same for L'Oreal, Diageo, Google. Help them do it better because they've been blocking us with keywords for too long. Mm-hmm. Keyword blocking, obviously, um, a serious issue in many respects in the industry. Um, okay, so we're speaking a day after the funeral of George Floyd, um, an African-American man who was killed by police in America during an arrest 
on the 25th of May, uh, it's that long ago now, um, whose death has sparked Black Lives Matter and anti-racism protests, not only in the US, but here in the UK and across the world, um, is yet another, frankly, outrageous example of institutional racism and its reignited conversations about, you know, how we're ever going to put an end to it. Now, as I did say on this podcast last week, I don't feel it's campaign's place as a magazine to set the world to rights, as it were, on you know fixing racism. But what we can do is talk about what our industry should be doing about it. And that's exactly what you guys have both done um, in the recent week. Um, Chris, now you helped write an open letter um, facilitated by Creative Equals uh, that was signed by hundreds of people, uh, employees and leaders who run advertising and media companies that called for action, not words, and laid out 10 ways in which businesses can hold themselves accountable in this respect. Um, talk us through what's the aim of the letter and what is actually being pledged. Um, you know, the aim of the letter is really simple, to do better. You know, the, the let's call today ground zero. There's, the, every agency has got a long way to go, you know. So there's um, pledges both to to make to ensure that agencies are um, improving the state of you know representation within their within their own homes, you know, in house. Let's say a letter is all well and good, and a lot of people signing the signature is all well and good. And when Ali Hannan from Creative Equals said, you know, do we want to do it? Yes, I want to do something, of course. I've, I have two kids. One's mixed race, he's 15, and I've got an eight, uh, a 19-year-old daughter who's white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. It's just the way it happened, same mum. Oh. But I've watched life be different for my son than it is for my daughter. Wow. You know, um, I've just watched it. You know, the school he's allowed to go to, they're both in Germany. The school he's allowed to go to compared to the school that my daughter's allowed to go to. You know, um, just a lot of I could go on. I'll fall down a rabbit hole if I go too much into that. But yeah, so the, this is, you know, there's a lot of actions that people could take. But there also, you know, the next stage of the letter is, you know, how we'll be held accountable. Because it's all very, like I just said, it's all very good writing a letter, you know. And I'm sure Ali and everybody else that signed towards it would say, you know, it was quite easy to write the letter because we know what needs to be done. It was quite easy to get people when, you know, who's going to dare say no. The next stage is, is the real testing time, the next stage to see if people actually enact some of the points in the letter, to see if people actually change their ways of working, open themselves and their companies and their staff's minds to, you know, embracing what's wrong and then changing that to what's right. Mm. And some of these ac- some of these action points in the letter, you know, they include things like making racial equality a core part of a company's leadership teams, um, the strategic priorities, you know, clear KPIs, um, other ones like understanding their own privileges and promoting and celebrating black employees. Um, when you come up with those ten points, what's the process? Who decides um, what what to put in there? I think it was a little bit of a collaboration. There was some points. So there was an initial draft sent around, um, which I believe came from Creative Equals. And then everybody within that sort of stream then fed back and said, you know, I agree with this point. I think you should uh, add this, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, after a sort of 24-hour period of collaborating between everybody that was on the stream, um, the, then the final 10 points were... Were, were what was left um 
And then, you know, I, I know I keep saying it, but it's really important. Them 10 points aren't the end. They're literally the beginning. That's people putting their name to something. The next, you know, the next 10 points that come will be how we're going to hold people accountable to the first 10 points um, and making sure that people are held accountable mm. um, in whichever way that needs to be. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely come on to the accountability because it's really important. Um, and Shani, you responded to this um, with powerful um, piece on LinkedIn, which we mm-hmm. published a version of on our site, uh, which is quite critical of this letter. Um, explain to us, was it the whole concept of an industry response that um, you didn't like or were there specific bits in particular that maybe you would have done differently? If I'm honest, for me personally, and obviously this is not coming at Chris or anyone who did the letter, because again, I know a lot of the guys, um, obviously like Ali and stuff, for me, it was more so like the idea of pledging to give people, black people, particularly because ultimately this is why this probably started, a chance and they're worth investing in is wild to me. Like we would never pledge to give white people opportunity would never do that because they get it <laughs> do you know what I mean so to me it's just wild that and and a whole and whole industry has to say you know what yeah we'll give them a chance like okay we're gonna write it down and we're gonna put our names to it say all right we'll do this like that's wild like what you've been doing my question is what have you been doing and clearly not a lot and the the for me it's disheartening because as a black woman in the industry constantly seeing the culture and language around diversity and inclusion yeah and how it's a priority people are bringing on workshops and coaches and consultations and all of these but then you man still have to go and pledge because you're not investing in talent so why why would you invest in people to give you the training and the consultation for you to then not go and get the talent and and then they say, and people say stuff like, oh, but you know, no one applies for the job or, oh, you know, like we just can't find them or, you know, like not enough of them. And for, like, it, it, it's just a wild concept to me. And it's really, it's really hard to comprehend. And I kind of feel like there is something about this time. I don't know if you agree, but there is something about this time with George Floyd and obviously the whole online movement and loads of stuff with talking Amy Cooper, the lady in the park who was, you know, seen everything on video mm. where people are literally, people are literally, black people are literally just tired now. Like it, it's tiring because we've been saying that this is happening. We've been like, we've been seeing videos. There are countless of names that are named in the article who have died, you know, unarmed, haven't got justice, like, it's been happening but it's I think because now it's been on video and people literally cannot deny it it is and people are still denying it in fact even if even though it's on video which is bizarre and for me I just I just found it like yeah it's that that for me was just like a little bit a little bit disheartening because I just felt like what have you been doing then and why has it now taken this whole movement and this whole awakening of you know, black people dying at the hands of our, you know, our system, for you to say, oh, yeah, sorry, let's give you a chance. And I pointed out in the um, letter, like, black people, a lot of black people do not refer to themselves as BME and BAME and PLC. Like, they don't do that because they know how different a lot of their struggles and prejudice is to 
people who don't who are non-white but they don't identify as black. And in the letter, it said investing in talent of colour and especially black people. But for me, it was just like, okay, so not say which is it, because it's not either or, because you should be investing in all people. But ultimately, the online movement is about black lives. So if you're going to be investing in black people, say black people, because it's black people that you're not investing in. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, we're not one homogenous group. Like, we are all different. And ultimately, what's being addressed here is, is the lack of support and investment and encouragement and empowerment to black people. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what I was talking about. And I just feel like that that sometimes needs to be addressed a bit more clearly. And Chris, you've had the opportunity to talk to Shani um, since last week. Um, she's obviously expressed her concerns again just now. Um, how do you respond to that? I agree with it. I mean, well, yeah, that, number one, totally agree. Um, where am I? Yeah, I put the letter together. I'm a black gay guy, <laughs> you know, so... I wasn't writing the letter for me, you know, me as a CEO of an agency, it wasn't written for me because, you know, my agency is about 72%. Um, if we're going to use the term BAME, it's 72% BAME because we have Asian, uh, Indian, Chinese, Black, mixed ethnicity. So, you know, we represent what we're, what we're going to our clients to talk about. Um, but the, the letter was important because something needed to be done. Was there something better to do? Probably. Um, you know, and actually really listening um, to Shelley about the black and people of colour. Um, that's a learning for me, for everybody else that's wrote it. Not, not that I didn't know there was a difference, but I mean, like, just making sure that we, you know, we say what we mean. You know, we let that slip. So we need to hold our hands up and and uh, and now say what it's about. And it's about black people because, you know, I myself have, uh, we've all had our own lived experiences and I go through them. You know, I'm quite privileged in the fact that, you know, I have money and I have a, a fast growing company, get to travel around the world a lot. But also, you know, every time I come to my uh, apartment block in Greenwich and I'm in a lift, People will still move their purses up, you know. People, when I swipe in to go into my own company, I'll swipe through the door. The door automatically opens and they'll still ask where I'm going. I'm stumbling on my words because I sort of agree with everything, so I shouldn't be rebooking anything or coming up with an excuse because, you know, why are we even writing a letter? Why, why are we writing a letter to say, Ask, you know, mm-hmm. please see us? That's what it basically says. It says, please see us. And now we start accepting us. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to write anybody. I don't beg anybody to see me. I know, I, I feel I have a duty as a leader of an agency now to do something, but do I want to go and tell people, actually, you know, write a nice letter and say, can you please see me? And actually, yeah. in these 10 points, can you make sure you do all these so that you actually see me? I'm not doing it for me anyway. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm watching the language. I'm a bit nervous, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I, but I'm doing it for my son, Jerome. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'll be damned if he's going to come into this world. You know, I'd love him to take over my company. I'd love it to grow and for him to come. And, you know, he thinks the world of me at the moment. Um, thinks, you know, my dad's a CEO. You know, he can't, there isn't anybody he doesn't bloody tell. Um, 
but if he just knew the truth that even CEO dad still, you know, has them microaggressions daily, weekly. Yeah. And um, you, you mentioned, you know, this is, is the first step, ground zero, as you put it. And there are going to be hopefully 10 more points that come at a later date. Um, so I'd like to know what's, have there been already plans in terms of what's going to happen next, or even if it's just a broad idea? And more importantly, how can I, as a journalist, how can I keep tabs on what's going on and hold these companies accountable to the pledges that they're making? Like Chris said, I was going to say, me and him have literally just, this is like probably our second proper encounter. But I think, I think there is is still a strategic process being put forward to that. And the reason why that is still being put forward is because it's hard and everyone is going to, everyone should be held accountable that exists in that industry. So that means people you know, like yourselves, like campaign, publications, media agencies, advertising agencies, intermediaries, um, you know, unions, everyone has to be held accountable because we can't just say, even clients, do you know what I mean? Like, And that is a really hard like, like I said it in my letter, like, it's going to be hard, it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to be so challenging because there are some people that are not willing to jump on the boat. Ultimately, there are some people in that industry that are racist, that do exist in their privilege, and they are happy to stay there, yeah? And that is something that we have to address. And I feel like, ultimately, a lot of people do not want to address it because they don't want to talk about it, but that's what we've got to talk about. So the, the approach and the steps to doing all those 10 things is, firstly understanding the strategic ways of thinking with that exist in all those in, in just, um, those agencies because come on like I'm sure we can all imagine like not only do you have to follow those 10 points but ultimately you have to tap into your company culture everyone's company culture is so 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 different do you know what I mean like people are at so many different levels and people are at so many different journeys of learning about what is actually happening within our system so that accountability has to be held from top to bottom, like er, like everyone. And I just, I myself, I, I was even saying this to a friend the other day, like I myself has even, I've, I've even accepted that I don't plan on being in advertising for the next 15, 20 years of my life. So I myself have accepted that even when Why I'm not? ready to leave. Why not, Shani? Just, just because I'm, I'm just trying to do more stuff. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, in 15, 20 years, I'll come to like 46 or something or eight. I don't know. But and I'm, and I'm, I'm hoping that I can just, I can take a break. Do you know what I mean? Because I would have, I would have been here for so, like, for me, that's quite a long time. So, right. but not, not because I don't want to be in the industry, just because I feel like, you know, I'm trying to chill. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But, um, but it's more like I've accepted that I might not even see the change that I really wish to see. I might not even see the change in that space of time, but there will there will be some form of change if we start now and properly. Do you know what I mean? So I don't really even think, I mean, Chris can probably answer better than me, but I don't really even think there's a direct answer to that question because everyone is still figuring out. Like I bet all them CEOs, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I bet they signed it with the best intentions. And I'm hoping that they went back to their companies and they are trying to now figure out a plan they are trying to now figure out a company policy of how we go through them 10 steps and hold each other accountable. And they are trying to now look at the different hiring methods. I'm hoping that is what they're doing, but to outline what that all looks like in one answer is, is near enough impossible. Do you know what I mean? Because it will look different for everybody. I think for me to add, if you don't mind me jumping in, to add on to that, um, I know Shelley's saying that, you know, she might not see it in her lifetime. Well, I'm going to give the industry two years 
in two years, my son is 18 and, he, you know, he could be looking to come into here. And like I said, I'll be damned if he's going to go through what you go through in our industry right now. I'll be damned. So it's two years. You know, the world stopped spinning three months ago and we all adapted overnight. You know, businesses sorted themselves out working from home. There are agencies and companies that have had policies. We don't do work from home. We never will do work from Well, now everyone does. You know, now now we've, you know, the world literally stopped spinning. <laughs> I know this is off, but I just still find it funny that Contagion is like still in the top <laughs> 10 on um, Netflix. <laughs> Not left for three months. But um, yeah, you know, we adapted. We adapted to the new way of doing things. There is no reason why this second movement, because now, you know, for a lot of black people, the world has stopped spinning again. Because now we're being reminded of what our, uh, you know, what we go through, what people or where people think our place is, how people treat us, you know, them tiny little microaggressions that we get every day and we didn't think about are now just big thuds in the face because I'm tired. Like I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of explaining. I'm tired of telling the world why you should be doing what you should have done from day one that you were born, which is just accept everybody. Not, you know, I'm tired of people saying, oh, I don't hear, uh, I don't see color. What? You don't see me. Like what, what does that even mean? You know, or all lives matter. Well, yeah, they do. When black lives matter, because how can all lives matter if black lives don't? You know, just all these silly little things that are going on at the moment. So for me, it's two years. They've got two years to sort themselves out. I mean, that is whole for like that. See, I want that. I want that optimism because I want that optimism because I feel like for me personally, like I'm not, and I'm not saying that I don't have like, uh, what's he hope in the industry and faith in that because I definitely do. Like, I think there are definitely some incredible individuals. You know, Chris being one of them that are really moving the industry forward, speaking out, being proud of who they are, owning their existence. And, you know, and I feel like it's so important that, that you know, us as black people and as those who identify as non-white or anything that is just non-traditional to, you know, <clears throat> a straight white man, I feel like everyone should feel empowered to do so. But that's the problem, we don't. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't feel empowered to do that. Like, I have countless stories, countless stories of people who are my friends or who are, like, you know, uh, family or, like, friends of friends who have been directed to me of how, you know, like, this person, they're scared to go to HR because they might lose their job. This person's had to eat alone because they said that she can't sit with them. This person... They, they were told to come to a meeting for nine o'clock, but really excited at half nine, but they just wanted them to wait there because they thought that it was cool to take the piss of their time. Like so many different horror stories and they are all stories of black people. And you cannot tell me that that is happening. People be like, oh, you sure it was their race though? Like, oh, like, then tell me horror stories like that for 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 white people because I, I don't hear them. I don't, I, I don't hear them. I don't, I don't hear... I have I had a friend email me after I wrote the letter saying that he was going for an interview and he had hair and he was thinking about cutting off all his hair because he might not get the job. Now, how many white men do you know that are contemplating cutting their hair because they might not get a job? How many? I, I, I don't, there's probably none. 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, and it's like, how how are you contemplating? You're not contemplating whether or not you know you're skilled up to the interview, or if you're ready, you know, to go in and be the best that you can, or you know enough about what the company's done. You're contemplating whether or not when you walk through that door, that person's going to look at you and be like, "Yeah, nah, sorry." And that is that is the horrific stories that black people yeah. have, and the horrific fears. And I just I don't think that that is a mentality that we can get over in you know overnight or in a year or so because it has literally been indebted in us it's, it's been from from early like from early oh you're pretty for a black girl or you know oh you're not that bad actually for one of for one of the black folks that's what that's what people say yeah i mean every everyone's got horrendous stories to tell i mean um i remember um having uh, meeting someone for the first time in a meeting was it three or four years ago now and um they they didn't they hadn't met me before they only knew my name and so when I introduced myself came into the the place and introduced myself um the guy literally the first thing he said was oh oh by the name Omar Oaks I was expecting to meet a big black guy exactly and I was um you know I was just <laughs> shocked and didn't know what to say and um in hindsight I wish I, I wish I had said something you know, I wish I just walked out of the meeting, to be honest. It's such an outrageous thing to say. And I've told colleagues about this, and I've said it publicly elsewhere before. Um, but, you know, we've all got our own stories to tell. It's not the same as what you just said, Shani, but it's it's all over the place, and it's it's how you react to it. Um, but I want to ask, is it is it when it, people do have those instances of facing discrimination to varying degrees, is it how companies react to that, which you think is the first thing that needs to be tackled? Or is it the broader things, you know, we, we could talk about quotas, the Rooney rule, changing hiring processes, getting more BAME people into the industry. Which one of those do you think is the higher priority? First, like Shelley said, it's empowering. Because the first thing is, they need to feel like they can go and tell HR so that the company can know and then enact whatever policy that they've got in place. You know, so the very first step is for companies to empower the people within their workforce. That's that's step number one, to make everybody feel like from today, I can tell you when someone's complaining because my food smells, because it's, you know, it's Caribbean cooking and somebody makes a funny little joke or something like that, I can come and I can say, I don't like that. So I think that's step number one is that empowerment. I mean, everybody's got a policy. That's why I'm hoping, maybe I'm hoping too much. I am optimistic, far too optimistic. But I mean, they're not going to go and write all new policies of, uh, uh, you know, for grievance policies, for race and discrimination. They already have them. They've been there for the last 10 years. There isn't a company, you know, there's no one in our, well, there'll be very few in our industry that don't already have these comprehensive, spent thousands on getting them done uh, policies. So that's not the problem. The policies aren't the problem, not the full problem anyway. You know, Um, it's how are they uh, enacted? It's do Mm -hmm. people feel empowered enough to come and tell you there's a problem? Mm -hmm. You can only enact a policy when someone says, okay, I've been done wrong by, you know. Um, Do managers feel empowered to actually take it up themselves? So not waiting for that person to say that's wrong. Because you bloody Mm -hmm. heard it because you're over there. You're in the same office. You can hear we're all in lovely little open plan. Well, we're not now. We're all in closed office homes. But you know what I mean? With the big open, nice plan offices. I'm sure the both of you have heard so much in an open plan office. I've got to the point of being just gobby now. I just call it all out. Um, 
you know, a little bit like your experience. I had one where we went to pitch, big client. They are our client now, actually. There's like 12 of us went in to pitch. Um, there was about 10 of them, big boardroom. I stood up at the meeting to sort of introduce them. I did hardly any work. I turned up just to, to sort of be moral support and then to jump in if anyone looked like they were struggling with their with a question from the client. That was it. They did all the work. I stood up to introduce them. And then the main guy of the client, I won't say who it is because they are our client uh, now, which, you know, I'm going to come back to why that's a problem as well. The um, They literally said, oh, sorry, son, if you could just wait till your boss gets here and then um, and then we'll all get going together. <laughs> and I'm the CEO. So, you know, mm-hmm. th- this wasn't that long ago. Our clients should empower us and hold us to rights not be afraid of calling out because they did something wrong. I am, you know, not for me. I'll survive a little while and what what I've got. But I have employees. And if we were to lose that, I could have to downsize a little. And, you know, if if it's the case of me saying something and not saying something, I choose them to have a job. So I think as well, brands, you know, there'll be loads of brands listening to this. You know, we need to feel empowered to say to Mm -hmm. you. 100%. do you know what I mean? That yeah. I'm, I'm feeling empowered, even in my privileged position, because I am privileged. I'm, I'm a privileged black guy. That's I am privileged in many ways that we can feel empowered to go and say, you know, what you did was wrong and not yeah. feel that, you know, we're about to lose that business. And, you know, because that's going to keep our mouth shut as well. So there's a lot of angles that this needs to come from. Mm. Yeah, you're saying yes in agreement, Shani. And um, what do you think would help be most helpful in empowering companies to empower people to do that? Well, first of all, I would just encourage companies to listen. A lot of them are so defensive, or they try and dismiss. Like, like I, I'll, I'll put it out there now, right? That back to what um, Chris said. Equally, I am also a privileged position. You know, I'm a co-founder of a company. The founder of the Elephant Room is equally a white middle-class man who saw me, became a mentor, took me on board, taught me the ropes, and we, we, you know, we started something amazing together. But he, he was someone who stepped out of his comfort zone and was just like, "Yo, like, you know, like, you know, this this is a partnership that could really work, right?" The likelihood of a lot of people doing that is very, very slim. Like a lot of people look at the story and think, what? The CEO left with an intern to start a new business. Why would he do that? Why in the world would he do that? And ultimately, the the thing, the thing that I always say is, is that this is also about people, not people like me who have the confidence to call it out and to go to work anyhow and to wear the the hairstyle that I want, to have the nails that I feel like because I'm confident in my own skin and I know that I'm in a position where people are going to back me. It's, it's, for, it's for the young person or the people in the office who do not do not feel, have that character in them. They're, they're not confident in that way. They don't have an innate feeling to just be like, you know what, nah, that's not okay. That comes. That is about character and that is about having the... Um, the sort of mindset of like, you know what, no matter, even if I lose the job or not, or if I say this or not, I'm going to feel quite happy that I said that because that's what I stand for. A lot of people don't have that and they don't feel like that. And companies need to encourage people to do that. And that empowerment will come from not unconscious bias training and not, not DNI, not DNI, um, 
workshops. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those things, but it's going to come from confidence coaching, personal development lessons, people who, you know, practice public speaking, in-house events that encourage you to speak out, on, on that, you know, book clubs that um, set you off, um, you know, off your off your normal traditional route that and like, oh, okay, like, oh, like I was reading Sister Soldier yesterday and you get me and I was reading, but like all these things, like having quotes around the office that are empowering from people like James Baldwin to, do you know what I mean? Like mm. they have to be able to see it in themselves. And if you don't, if you're not empowered in that way by your company, you're not going to, you're not, you're just not going to do it. And that's how they, that's how they need to go about empowering their employees. Like it's not about like a creative, a creative course, that you want to send people on and then when they come back, you never ask them how they even went to get me or a marketing agency course that, you know, oh yeah, I've got all the skills, but I'm still black, so you're not going to promote me. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how that's that's the mindset they're going to have. And you need to get them out of that mindset. And I feel like, like, again, it's 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 for the people who are unheard. Do you know what I mean? Like those people who are not popular. If I didn't, if I didn't write that letter, a lot of people wouldn't know who I am. You get me? Like, a lot of people, they probably just think I'm some any black girl in the industry, not knowing that I've been doing my thing for the past four or five years. But ultimately, I did write the letter and it has raised my voice in, the, in certain spaces. And, and people, and now people will come to me for that because they're like, oh my gosh, you know X. But it's like, no, because I, think, I bet you've already got black employees. I bet you've already got young black girls that are around and do go and talk to them, talk to them and listen. Do you know what I mean? Like, just because I'm the one that's at the forefront doesn't mean that I'm the same the one also with all the answers. Do you know what I mean? Because so many black people's experience is so different and it's important to listen to that. And I think that a lot of the time people look to experts and, and I'm not saying again that you shouldn't because of course, yes, there are certain people that have certain experiences, certain ways of working and understanding that they can work with people and get them to understand and translate it in a way that, you know, is possible. Like, you know, obviously Chris, again, being one of them. But there are also people who are underground who have that lived experience that are in your, literally in your building that you can literally go over to and have a conversation. Just have a conversation with them. You know what I mean? And it's okay. It's okay to do that. It's okay to not even know and just be like, you know what, actually, I don't really know the answer to this. What, do you want to have a catch-up? Do you want to get lunch? Do you know what I mean? Like, just bring me back to that human level. Mm. And Chris, what do you think? I, I imagine, you know, we can't escape the fact that this is happening during the pandemic and a lot of companies are facing a lot of problems right now. We hear about restructuring all over the industry. People are sadly going to lose their jobs. You know, how, how would you react if a company boss tells you privately, well, I completely understand where you're coming from. This is really important. But right now, you know, I've, I've got to focus on saving my business and worry about this tomorrow. What would you say to that? I have a really, a really simple answer. And it's, it's a little bit smoke up backside, but I hope you understand why I'm saying it. But so before all of this, you know, Brand Advance was this outside little agency that was, you know, um, getting to speak to Unilevers, Googles and L'Oreal's, but wasn't really high on their agenda of how much you're going to spend, etc. And all we offer is how to speak to uh, a, a way to to get your brand, et cetera, in front of black eyeballs, in front of LGBT eyeballs, in front of, you know, to make sure that you're reaching these demographics in an authentic way. That's all we are. Nothing unusual. Any agency could do it, but nobody was. Now, um, you know, if agencies had got their act in order, 
then their brands, whether it's government, whether it's brands that still, you know, like Tesco's and Unilever and GSK that really did okay during COVID because we were all still buying their stuff, um, they would have been able to service these clients and not take such a financial hit. Brand Advance has had a 400% profit increase, uh, not profit, sorry, revenue increase since the first day of COVID. And my company has, well, we've employed about 30 people since lockdown, maybe a bit more actually. So my company's twice the size as it was before COVID. And that isn't because I've got some magic formula, et cetera, just because we were helping people reach people. And agencies have been helping people reach ABC1 with a certain spend demographic. Do you know what I mean? Like, so my answer would be, if you just sorted this earlier, your clients wouldn't have needed to come to what a, you know, a diversity specialist. What is, what is a diversity specialist? Well, somebody, we're all in an industry that our job is to take our client's product and get it in front of as many people as possible and make them want to buy it. That's, that's pretty much the job, you know. Now, all we do is stick, help brands stick it in front of the people that are forgotten, the others, the ones that are the outsiders. Put them all together and you've got, a, you know, a reach of a billion people a month on your network. But, but actually, you know, we're just doing the same job as their agencies would have been doing. And if they were able to, to really authentically say, we can help you reach, babe, you know, um, government or brands, now that you want to reach key workers, you know, the same people that three months ago were called low-skilled or low-paid workers. Now we clap, you know, whether it's a black bus driver or a nurse from Eastern Europe or, you know, uh, a street cleaner. We called them low-paid, low-skilled workers three months ago. Now on a Thursday, we clap and call them key workers. And now in the eyes of a marketeer, they're called key workers and they're the main demographic. Every advert you've seen for the last three months has been aimed either at key workers or aimed at the general population to thank key workers. Um, what demographics sit in that key workers? The reason COVID has hit us all, has hit black and Asian um, so hard is because they over-index in that key worker category mm. in all different jobs. So, you know, my answer is you wouldn't need to lay off half the people if you'd just done this before. So go and play catch up. Uh, you know, I'm loving, uh, you know, that Brand Advance has been able to grow, that we've been able to, and I know I'm making this a little bit about Brand Advance, and I'm sorry, it's just to make the point, um, is, you know, that's my answer. Oh, I haven't got, you know, I'm having to downsize, so I'm going to wait a little bit longer. Okay, do that. We'll, we'll carry on doing with the clients, you know, from a media side. Um, mm. You know, yeah, you'll do it, you know, Elephant Room will do it from a creative side. We'll, we'll come along and clean up on and show your clients how it could be, should yeah. be done. And ultimately, yeah, 100%, like, I echo that. And you know what, as well, ultimately, it's not hard. Like, but a lot of people, and I'm sure before Black Lives Matter movement, because Black Lives Matter is not a movement that was started because of George Floyd. Black Lives Matter has been happening so before all of this and before all of COVID, right, I'm sure we know that everyone was talking about the future of tech, the future of work. What, what do Gen Z want? What do millennials want? Um, you know, like, how, how are we, what does, what does language look like in, you know, um, 2025, 2050? Like, so many of those kind of stuff was happening. But it's almost like we've been put on 
we've almost been pressing like forward, fast forward button and a rewind button because now it's like, you know what? The Black Lives Movement, the Black Lives Matter Movement, you're not even just seeing black people protesting. That's what's, that's what's also kind of beautiful about it. You see Asian people, you see white people, you see mixed race people, you see Chinese people, you see people in Switzerland, people in Oxford, people in Australia. And you know what? People are tired. And the new, that is the new generation. That is what you call the new generation. And they're just going to come in. And these agencies, these big agencies and these big clients who are, have been in the industry for like 40, 50 years, they're going to get wiped out. You know why? Because the generation is going to say, we don't need you. We'll actually create our own stuff. We'll create our own agencies. We'll create, we'll create our new brands, like literally like sustainability, all that kind of stuff, like ethical thinking and all of that is new now. There's literally a whole, whole big boss of it just coming through. And if clients do not catch up, they will just get left behind, period. Do you know what I mean? Like if agencies don't yeah. catch up, they'll get left behind because the new generation's coming. And I think it's even now, like millennials probably take up most of the workplace now anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, and the, and they have got new ways of working and new ways of thinking, and they aren't they aren't staying in jobs for more than two years if it's not a place where they want to be or if it's not something they see purpose in. If they aren't they aren't gonna you know um, again like they want to have a portfolio career. So I, I, I suppose I fall into that category because, like I said, I don't want to be here in the next 15, 20 years talking about oh I've been here for about thirty years. No, I don't want to do that because I do so many other things outside of that, and a lot of what I do is led by purpose and value. And all these movements that you see coming through, the reason why you see a lot of people, like, again, tagging onto it is because, again, a lot of people are just unlearning and relearning. White people are learning about white privilege. White people who have white privilege did not know that white privilege was a thing. But that's because it's a new, it's a new, it's a new language that's been spoken and people are trying to, un, like, again, take away all of that. So it's like, to be honest, if agencies and clients aren't listening, they will literally just get silence. Mm-hmm. I have so many more questions to ask you guys, but unfortunately we're running out of time. Um, I just want to squeeze in one uh, question. I was on, I was on social media yesterday preparing for this podcast and asking um, people, you know, I've, I've got Shani and Chris on what questions would you have for them? Um, I'll just squeeze in one. I got from Elizabeth Aniagbone, who's co-founder of 16 by nine media. Um, she asked, how do you get leadership within Adland in the room with the likes of Chris and Shani and all of us who want to see change, um, where they're not, where these people not only commit to action, but are held accountable, um, through a charter. Um, Chris, um, do you think a charter is a good way to go? That's the thing that tells them what to do. Then there needs to be the, the accountability part of it. That's, you know, that's a bit that makes them do it. So, and whether that accountability is to name and shame, you know, in let's say campaign, you know, runs every year and says which did, uh, and it's independently verified um, by you know an outside. So it's not the people that put the the, the charter, so to speak, together. But um, and then it says whether you did do it or you didn't, um, and we can all see and we can all make an informed choice of where our next move will be or where it won't be. More importantly, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah, for real. How do you get leadership in the room? How do you get leadership in the room? So for me personally, that that truly depends on the type of leadership you're talking about and who you are actually trying to talk to. Because you can be talking to the converted. There are a lot of leadership people who 
they do a lot in that space so you can recognize like you know who are the leaders that are talking about diversity and inclusion who are the leaders that are having those conversations outside of the agency and talking to like you know campaign the drum um or are you trying to convert leaders leaders who you see all the time but you never really see them engage or you're trying to get them to understand and my crystal my my like advice would be you know what do not even necessarily place your expectation on that leader just yet do what needs to be done from the ground up so start to ignite conversation in the office start to um start a mailing list or a newsletter that's going to get everyone talking about it and i promise you you will not be ignored because the moment you start to make noise within the office and everyone starts to talk about it and this person saying that and then you was talking about this event and then you wrote up that event and you was here yesterday and then that agent was like oh i saw your colleague you, you won't be ignored you just you just won't be and leadership will have to be like you know what can we have a chat because we've been seeing you everywhere do you know what i mean and that is what i feel like young people need to sort of take ownership of or or anyone who is in that space where they feel like oh i just need the right people you know like there's a just just think about it in sideways don't always think about it oh like you know top bottom top bottom like pick who do you need on your side and if you get the majority on your side then eventually they'll, they'll just come to you 100 percent. like when i was at when i was at um, my previous agency i used to send around um i sent around a, a like a like a sort of newsletter once a week called the urban lowdown all about black culture i'd share my work i was writing for afropunk at the time I'd write up events that I'd been to. I'd talk about music. I'd talk about the first ambassador for Chanel was um, Black Ambassador was Willow Smith at the time. Skepta dropped his album. Drake dropped views. I saw my loads of stuff. People were reading it and people read it so much. People knew my name, but not who I was. So I'd literally get emails. I'm like, oh, like, you know, like, I'd love to chat and like actually meet you because I get you on the air and da da da. And then it got to senior leadership. Then it got to Dan, his CEO. He became my mentor we left the company. Do you know what I mean? So you just, you, you actually just have to keep pushing. Great. Thank you both so much. We are out of time now. And um, as I said, I have so much more to ask you, um, but you've been very generous with your time. Thank you both so much. No, thank you for having me. No, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Campaign Podcast. Please share and feedback to me ideas for what to talk about in future episodes. My email is omar.oaks at haymarket.com. There are so many hot topics in advertising and marketing right now. Tell me whom do you want to hear from? What should we be talking about? And once again, thanks to our friends at Number 8 Studios for enabling us to record this episode remotely. And of course, to Campaign's Ben Londersborough for editing and co-producing this podcast. You can get all the latest industry stories and see the UK's latest ad campaigns on campaignlive.co.uk. And please stay safe wherever you are, listener, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.